4: And greetings my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a lot on the program today. This new moratorium on evictions that a Trump judge just blew up. Congress had appropriated well over 10 billion dollars to help renters, you know, pay their rent and keep landlords whole and that was supposed to be distributed over the next month or two. The moratorium expired on June 30th. A Trump judge just blew it up, which just completely scrambles the whole thing. Professor Richard Wolf is gonna drop by. Is the gig up on the gig economy. And I want to get into uh, my rant from today about how do we stop corporate America from shoving fascism down our throat. But first, with us on the line is Charles Sauer, the libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute. He's also the author of the new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Marketinstitute.org is the website. You can tweet him at Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R. And Charles, I see that a majority of Democrats uh, in the Democratic caucus have called for the uh, White House to support this TRIPS waiver. This is uh, essentially what it says is that the, right now Pfizer, for example, just to pick one company, for example, Pfizer controls the patent on their product that they developed and therefore they control who can make it and what it gets sold for and they can make any kind of profit they want. They just showed a fairly massive profit, $3.5 billion profit just on this drug, and one of the largest corporate profits or Pfizer profits in their history in this last quarter as a result of this. And what this waiver does through the World Trade Organization's trade agreements is it requires Pfizer to allow other companies in other countries to manufacture this product and pay Pfizer a reasonable profit, which under the World Trade Organization rules is around 7% of the revenue, the total revenue for which the product is sold by the generic companies in other countries. So, So Pfizer isn't losing explicitly, they're not getting anything stolen from them, arguably, But they are losing considerable profit that they could make if they were to hang on to manufacturing and say, now we're going to dribble this out over three years, let a few hundred million people die, but hey, we'll make billions more in profits. So, A, any disagreement with how I've described what's going on, and B, uh,
0: whether you disagree or not, (laughs) your take on it all. Charles Sauer. I mean, except for your attacks on the companies interspersed, I think that the general facts are correct here. But the main idea here and the problem is, is not this pandemic. The problem is the next pandemic, because innovation is what has built the American economy, and it is what built this vaccine and meant that these companies were able to have a vaccine within a day of getting the actual genetic information for what we were facing. And so we were able to actually produce it in a year. I mean, this was amazing stuff. This was the type of progress that nobody could have imagined. And that's because we have a very strong research and development system in the U.S., and we were able to produce it. So if you take away well, on, the rights these companies
4: Hang, hang today. on, hang on, hang on. Charles, the Pfizer vaccine was not developed in the United States. It was developed by a Turkish immigrant company in Germany based on mRNA technology that's been around for 20 years and that's been applied to SARS viruses like the coronavirus for over five years. And not one penny... Of Donald Trump's so-called Operation Warp Speed went to the development of this vaccine. What am I missing? Yeah,
0: Warp, Warp Speed was definitely oversold. Well, the benefit of Warp Speed was getting paperwork out of the way so that they could go through the approval process faster. The money that was spent was, well, Trump took more credit than he was due for Operation Warp Speed. However, we haven't seen many presidents come in and remove the red tape in the way that he did in this system. So he does deserve some credit in this. But look, when we're talking about intellectual property, we're talking about one of the few rights that is actually in the United States competition. We have a right to free speech, and you have a right to own your intellectual property. So what the Biden administration is doing is taking that away. Look, the European Union rejected this uh, waiver. I believe Germany did. Japan did. Major countries with research and development arms rejected this waiver because it is ridiculous, and it doesn't just hurt the response to covid because there's plenty of ways to get vaccines to these countries without running over intellectual property rights but it hurts for example investment please name one round
4: why aren't we doing Uh, that Then i mean you've got you've got massive meltdowns happening right now in india which has some of the most advanced and extensive vaccine manufacturing plants in the world we buy vaccines from india but they can't make any of these COVID vaccines because every single one of them is covered by a patent that isn't an Indian patent.
0: These companies have not had any problems licensing out their patents. They haven't had a problem lowering prices and producing things at reasonable amounts. What you talked about in your first response to me was called brand, fair and reasonable rates. Well, there's actually ways to set this up. And by going against the market. And by just avoiding that, it looks like you're being good to the rest of the country. But what you are doing is undermining the intellectual property system, the research and development system, and more importantly, the investment into that. Look, I've got three kids. I like talking about them. I teach them to be inventors. But the idea about inventing is you get that intellectual property. It's one of the rights that the founders put in the Constitution for a reason. It made us different than other countries. And the fact is, is if we run over those rights now, we hurt tomorrow. And that's the problem that I have with this. That's the problem that the other countries, the European Union, we're not alone in doing this. This is just the Democrats wanting to go after a large corporation that they randomly think is making too much money. And I want them to make money off this. I want them to make money off helping us get out of COVID.
4: They've already made a fortune, but just to be clear here, Charles,
0: are you saying
4: because you know what what the World Trade Organization is saying, what the United Nations is saying, what numerous countries are saying, and frankly what the Democrats are saying, and I'm not hearing you know any pushback from this on the facts, is that if these waivers, which again are not going to hurt pfizer well you know pfizer instead of making a thousand percent profit or a ten thousand percent profit is only going to make a seven percent profit you know because of these waivers but if these waivers don't happen if these waivers do happen then countries all over the world can ramp up and start manufacturing vaccine immediately and this isn't just pfizer by the way this applies to other companies as well but if these waivers don't happen we're going to have hundreds of millions of people dead you know, uh, billions of people infected, and a massive explosion in vaccine mutations that could kill us all. I mean, it just seems like a reasonable deal. Charles, you got the last 20 seconds.
0: Well, if you look at the innovation, the Uh, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, ITIF, they're a left-leaning foundation in general. They have 10 ways that we could actually increase vaccine production without this. And they talk about the fact that with this, it's actually going to slow things down. So this isn't just me talking. This isn't just the Republicans talking. There's large countries against this. There's intellectuals on the left that are opposed to this. This is a major issue. And because, look, if you waive the intellectual property rights, these countries that don't have the labor force right now will take time to actually figure out how to implement the Charles
4: end program. Charles
0: already- Sauer. Charles, S-A-U-E-R,
4: is a Twitter handle and marketinstitute.org on the Internet. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Sasha in Kent, Washington. Hey, Sasha, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up?
2: Hey, I have a different take on the AstraZeneca vaccine and this controversy about patents. AstraZeneca okay. said from the get-go, no patent, and also they were pricing their vaccine at anywhere between 5 and $7.50 per shot, and the other two were 25 and $30 per shot. And I think there was corporate dirty tricks to try and smear the AstraZeneca with the, the blood clot issue that turned out to be totally not significant, but to keep AstraZeneca out of the game they were saying no well, patent it, right from the start.
4: A, I can't confirm the patent right or the prices. You know, I, I hear you, but I can't confirm that. But in terms of the blood clots, you know, J&J had the same problem. Apparently, with a very, very small subset of young women who have low platelet counts, these vaccines can produce some kind of an immune response that causes blood clots. In a very, I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about what a, a couple of dozen women out of literally what ten million doses at least between these two right. companies, between AstraZeneca right. and Johnson and Johnson, and less than birth um, control pills, way less. Yeah, it's it's exactly. Birth control pills present a very similar kind of, uh, of threat or danger, and but in uh, a higher magnitude. Exactly, but more frequently. But but you know, we all consider, or at least women who take birth control pills consider that a you know a threat that's worth having. I think it's a good thing that, frankly, this was all discussed out in the open. I realize that it's feeding some vaccine hesitancy or reluctance, and it's giving the anti-vaxxers a sword. But can you imagine if it had been covered up? Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, it, it would have been it would have been portrayed as a scandal and all kinds of things. I think it was handled correctly but i am not quite so quick to go to the conspiracy thing here sasha i'm
3: you know nobody's
2: hearing about the fact that astrazeneca never wanted the patent never took out a patent that that, you just don't hear that
3: well
4: maybe that's because it's not true i mean what makes you think that that's the case the sources that i read and i can't tell you what they were right now well that's uh, that's the problem with anything you find on the internet yeah I, I, yeah. I mean, it may be. It may be. And I'd have to fact check that. But I would be astonished if AstraZeneca or any other company decided to uh, throw R&D money into developing a product and didn't want to hold on to the patent. I mean, they could waive the patent. They could offer discounts against the patented product. But to simply say that they're not going to patent it I, you know, I believe it's I, true, I, I, but
2: I'll have to fact check it myself and uh, yeah, in order think, to stand up and so. say that. And then if it is, I will uh, get back to one of your sources and say, yeah, I was right.
4: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, or, or a call back. But I'm not ready to go down that conspiracy rabbit hole. I'm, I'm frankly more concerned just with, you know, keeping these things off the market. Thanks a lot for the call, Sasha. It's good to hear from you. It's the Tom Hartman Program. The other topic I wanted to get into was my rant from this morning, which is how do we stop corporations from shoving what I think you could essentially call, in the classic technical academic sense, fascism down our throats. And this goes, you know, way beyond the authoritarianism of Donald Trump. Uh, You know, basically what it gets into, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, fascism lately and all this sort of thing. And usually it centers around things like Donald Trump sending an armed mob on January 6th to the Capitol to try to kill uh, Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. And in fact, authoritarianism is typically a major piece of what we call fascism. But there's a larger piece that gets very, very little coverage and that's when, when a corporation has the power to essentially control government. And government kind of returns the favor by doing things that help out the corporation. Whether it's eliminating a nation, or preventing a national healthcare system, no rational gun control laws, no free college, even the tiniest tax on carbon. These are the kind of things that we would have had in America like they have in other countries long ago, were it not for government being basically under the thumb of for-profit corporations. And you know this is the, the word fascism comes from this, it comes from the word fasce. You know, it's Latin, but it's an old Roman term. And the fasce was the symbol of the Roman Republic. It was a bundle of sticks. With a rope wrapped around it and an axe sticking in the top, and the whole point is that if you have a single stick, it's easy to break. If you have a bundle of sticks, it's really hard to break. And so the idea of the fasces as the logo for the Roman Republic, and it's also was early on used as a logo for the American Republic. There's a fasces carved into the uh, the speaker's podium at the in the United States Senate. In homage to the Roman Republic, and the whole point was that a, a collection of states, 13 states joined together, would be more powerful. They would be that bundle of sticks than a single state, than a single stick. But you know, when Mussolini came along, he said, you know, we're going to give a whole new meaning to this word. And in, and in fact, he even wrote. He said, the fascist state lays claim to rule in the economic field no less than in others. It makes its action felt through the length and breadth of the country by means of its corporate, social, and educational institutions and in all the political, economic, and spiritual forces of the nation organized in the respective associations circulating within the state. This is from his uh, labor charter, April 21, 1927. And as a result, you had all these giant corporations, you know, kind of competing for Mussolini's favor and for the government contracts that could flow from Mussolini's favor. Not to mention the political power that could grant profits and tax cuts and immunity from being held responsible and all these other kinds of things. And today, as we have, you know, a number, a substantial number of Republican politicians actively working to subvert democracy and establish a kind of merger of corporate and strongman rule, what Mussolini called fascism. Uh, these politicians are being supported by a lot of major American corporations. Now, many of those corporations came out and said early on that they were no longer going to give financial assistance to those Republicans who voted to basically make Donald Trump president, even though he lost the election, and, or you know, supported the insurrection of January 6th. And, and as you know, Daily Beast reporting and Judd Legum's reporting found, there are, there are several corporations that have already kind of gone back on that deal. But the real problem here, I think, is, is the problem that goes back to the Reagan administration, which was when, you know, prior to the Reagan administration, a corporation had multiple responsibilities. They were responsible to their stockholders, of course, and they still are, and that's the only thing they're responsible to anymore. But they also used to be responsible to their local community. They had a responsibility to their employees, and these—I'm talking responsibilities that not only were recognized, you know, kind of as moral imperatives by the leadership of the corporations, but were also in law. They had a, a responsibility to their customers. They had a responsibility. The management of a corporation had had a responsibility to the corporation itself as an entity. And Reagan blew all that up with this Milton Friedman, Robert Bork logic. That and this literally came out of Robert Bork and Milton Friedman. Robert Bork wrote a book about it. He campaigned for it most of his life, and he finally got it in the Reagan administration, that corporations only should be responsible to their stockholders. So if your only goal is increasing stock price and dividends, in other words, increasing profits, if that's your only goal and you have no other responsibilities, then Pretty much anything you can do to get there seems like fair game, right? Including corrupting the political process of a nation, which is what has happened here in the United States. So my question to you, what can we do about this? How do we roll this back? How do we deal with our, quote, fascism problem in the United States?
3: You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program.
4: Your calls, thoughts, ideas, suggestions, rants, disagreements on this or Charles or Trips or any of this stuff, give me a shout. We'll be back. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door Every week, and it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com/slash Hartman with two ends or enter the code Hartman with two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman.
2: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
4: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Tribalization of Politics, How Rush Limbaugh's Race-Baiting Rhetoric on the Obama Presidency Paved the Way for Trump by Ian Refowitz or refowitz. Donald Trump owns, conser- this is from the uh, first chapter, Donald Trump owns conservative media 100% lock, stock, and barrel. Full of bluster and bombast, Trump uses modern media tools like Twitter to directly blast the nation with his unfiltered, uninformed, and uncivil messages at full volume. To those outside the conservative media bubble, it may seem as though Trump is the entire ballgame. Sure, Fox News is a presence, but the news channel has reconstituted itself these days as state media singular in purpose, to prop up Trump's candidacy. Whatever the, quote, conservative message might be these days, it doesn't exist without Trump. It's Trump who sets the agenda. It is Trump who determines the message, and it is Trump who decides who best can sell it. 10 out of 10 times, it's Trump. Thus, in this world of Trump, 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 and more Trump, conservatives have built a massive media machine to promote a message that is often at odds with reality and the American mainstream. Forged in the aftermath of Barry Goldwater's 1964 landslide loss, this massive network of conservative TV, radio, print, and online outlets have allowed them to build an alternative reality so powerful and convincing that entire swaths of the country are held in thrall. A Pew study in 2017 found that 40% of Trump voters relied on Fox News as their main source of news. Meanwhile, only 3% of Hillary Clinton voters relied on any cable news channel as their primary source of information. Conservative websites like The Daily Caller and Breitbart reach millions. Social media like Facebook and Twitter is awash in conservative voices, further amplified by Russian bots. And the dark web has given voice to the darkest fringes of the conservative world, from white supremacists to conspiracy theorists, like the QAnon crew, convinced of a deep state conspiracy against Trump, fueled by child sex traffickers like Hillary Clinton but nothing reaches more conservative voices than am radio once the province of music stations the emergence of fm radio led to a mass migration to the higher quality band that left am radio in severe decline talk radio didn't require that same level of quality audio and station operators embraced the format the elimination of the fairness doctrine in 1987 made it possible for conservatives to take over the dial without concern that political balance was required And in 1988, a certain Rush Limbaugh launched his nationally syndicated show. It's hard to overstate just how dramatically important Limbaugh has been in defining conservative thought and ideology, with an audience that has at times reached into the tens of millions. No single conservative personality outside of modern-day Trump has had this kind of reach or influence. And unlike Fox News, which actively makes conservatives stupid, Limbaugh's method of misinformation has always been rooted in a more solid foundation of truthiness. A 2007 survey by Pew Research found that Limbaugh listeners demonstrated among the highest knowledge levels in response to a battery of political current affairs questions, with 79% having either a high or moderate level. Among Fox News viewers, the number was only 65%, second to last, with nightly news watchers faring worse. Here's a funny aside. The most informed were watchers of Comedy Central's Daily Show and Colbert Report, also at 79% combined, but with a larger number of high levels of knowledge. But knowing the names of the Vice President, Governor, and Speaker of the House is only base level knowledge. Limbaugh may accurately impart such information, but as this book shows, his pernicious twisting of facts, out of context quotes, and toxic editorializing have done far worse damage to our country than whether someone knows or doesn't know the name of of the Supreme Court, of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. If you are anything like me, the sheer amount of misinformation stated by Rush Limbaugh on the pages ahead will shock and anger you deeply. Not just about how Limbaugh twisted the truth. As Ian notes early on, Limbaugh launched his coverage of the Obama presidency with four simple words, I hope he fails. With that goal in mind, nothing would stop Limbaugh from spending the next years reinforcing the narrative of failure, the truth never stood a chance. What makes this so infuriating is that Limbaugh decided the lies and policy differences weren't enough to make Obama a failure. Instead, he had to other him, turning white America against him. And he did that with pure, unfiltered, unadulterated racism. I was shocked when Ian first told me about this project. He's literally going to go through eight years of Rush Limbaugh transcripts. I was shocked again when he told me he was finished. He actually read eight years of Rush Limbaugh transcripts. But that was nothing like the jolt from seeing the result of that thankless labor. His comprehensive transcribing of Limbaugh's hate, always in full context. What these pages show are the words of a white supremacist. And you'll find yourself, like me, wondering how the hell he has gotten away with talking like a KKK grand dragon in modern-day America. There's nothing subtle about what you're about to read. For example, when Barack Obama talked about the disparities in policing between white and black Americans, as objective and uncontroversial an observation as possible, Limbaugh happily ranted about the president carrying out, quote, a purposeful effort here to divide people in this country along racial lines, end quote. Pointing out racism to conservatives is always worse than the actual racism itself. The book, The Tribalization of Politics by Ian Refowitz. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida signed his voter suppression bill proudly on Fox News in a venue that was just a four-minute drive from Mar-a-Lago. He apparently flew there from Tallahassee just to do this, probably in the hopes that Donald Trump would show up and pat him on the head and, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, Trump didn't show up, but nonetheless, the bill got signed. Let me just add that to the pot. I mean, you know, we're now seeing voter suppression going from state to state to state all over the United States. And the only way to stop this that I can think of, and maybe you have a different idea or you know something I don't, but the only way to stop this is to pass federal legislation saying that states have to, you know, you know, cannot limit the right to vote, basically. They can't mess with the voting mechanism to make it harder for people that they don't think will vote for them to vote. And that's exactly what's going on here. But uh, anyhow, we'll get into that in in a little more detail as we uh, continue on down the program. Rama in Williamstown, Vermont. Hey, Rama, the very first producer of the Tom Hartman program is
1: on the air with us. Rama. Hey Rama, what's up? Hi Tom, how are you doing? How are, I'm I, I, great. How you are Louise. You? Hello to you guys. Hey, listen, I want to go back to your guest where he was talking. What you guys were talking about the vaccines and uh, releasing the patents so that they can go, you know, to, they can be mm-hmm. manufactured and copied around the world, right? And the guy kept referring to the patents as a right. And, and the way he was talking about it was putting them on a right, like you go read the, fir- the amendments, the First Amendment. He said it's in the
4: Constitution.
1: It is in the Constitution, but he said it's a right. that The intellectual property mm. was a right. So let's assume by intellectual property he's talking about patents and uh, the um, right. Uh,
4: trademarks,
1: Right, yeah. trademarks, So too. the Constitution states very explicitly, and the only place that they're mentioned is under the powers of Congress. And I'm quoting Article 1, Section 8. Yep. To promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. So I, I just bring this up because the way that he was presenting it, and, and if people start talking about is, is, I have a right to that patent. I have a right to that copyright. You don't have a right. It's Congress is supposed to promote the progress of science and useful arts, etc., by giving you, for temporary, just temporary uses, the exclusive right to that so I, right. I just it, it's an important distinction that can get lost in the greater discussion because we use so much shorthand in our t- talking that you know I don't have a right to a patent, but Congress can give me the exclusive right to, uh, under a patent.
4: Rama, this is why you were such a great talk show host in Vermont. You inspired me and why you were such a great producer when we put this program together in, in producing the, the, the early years of this program. You are Spot on. Um, what, what Article One, Section 8 says is that Congress may pass a law it, it, it doesn't grant the right to anybody for a patent or a, co- or a copyright. It grants Congress the right because they, the Constitution, as Barack Obama cr- correctly pointed out in 2008 and was pilloried for by the Republicans, the Constitution is, is a negative bill of rights, essentially. It says these are the things government may not do and or may yeah. do, you know. And yeah. and so what the, what Article One Section Eight what that I forget which sentence it is which paragraph you know uh, or paragraph it is in, in Article One Section Eight maybe you have it in front of you you could tell me um, but, two three four five six seven. it looks like about eight or nine it's hard to tell okay okay yeah there you there you go um, what it says essentially is that Congress may give people this right, and that Congress, therefore, can define the parameters of that right. And, and obviously, it's not an unlimited right. Congress initially, I think it was in uh, 1891 or 1892, when the first patent and trademark laws were passed, very early in the Republic. We were only a couple years old, where, and it was three years. And there was a lot of debate about that, you know, and, and you know, Jefferson thought it should be less than three years. There were other people who thought it should be five years or 10 years. And, and a lot of these people were writers, right? They were authors. And this was their, yep. their stuff that we're talking about. And inventors, Jefferson created over 200 inventions, Ben Franklin over 300. Neither Franklin. of them ever <laughs> patented a single one of them. I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, go ahead. I was just saying, when you said Jefferson, my mind went right to Ben Franklin on patents. So
4: yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, uh, well, Ben Franklin was the big inventor, but Jefferson—I mean, yeah. you know, he invented the, the the copy machine. Essentially, every letter he made, he made an identical copy of it with this machine that he had built. The, where as he used his quill pen, there was another quill pen that was on another piece of paper, making the same scratches. Oh. And he invented a type of desk, and he invented—he uh, invented all kinds of stuff.
1: But, and, you, know, but Tom, you know, this they is did this all while drinking hard cider and beer.
4: I know, and in the case of Jefferson, while being a slave master <laughs> right. as well, and and we can't forget that either. Although Ben Ben Franklin was very much not, um, and I, was part I of the wanna, you know, abolition movement.
1: I don't want to interfere with your rant here, Tom, because you are one of the wisest people I have ever met in my life, and I say that not as you know to compliment you, but just just as a mention of of how I how I view you. I don't always agree with you, but I think you're a very wise individual. And usually there's a button but that there. follows that kind of thing. No, there, no, but there isn't. It, it's just I. Why I hate to interrupt your rant. It is it's just oh. that I, I just want to bring people back around. but there's something you know but I see but in there. Something you've always talked about, which is if people who want non-republican oriented radio with money out there really want non-republican oriented radio, they need to put their money on the line. Rich people need to put up. That's what it boils down to. Well, and
4: and you and I have both been talking about that for a long time to a lot of people, and I wrote a piece about that for The Nation magazine back in December that I I refer people to. But what people can do right now who are listening to us, and I and you're kind of thinking like the producer that you and, and the talk show host that you were for years, but you're absolutely right, is anybody who's listening to this conversation and thinks America needs more of these kinds of conversations, yeah. if you're listening on a commercial radio station or Sirius XM, support their advertisers, call the advertisers up and tell them that you're doing so because you like the Tom Harbin program. Mm-hmm. If you're listening on a non-commercial station on one of our Pacifica affiliates, I know many of them are in Fund Drive right now, pitch in and help out with their fun drive. If you're watching on Free Speech TV, let them know. If you're watching on YouTube or any of the other social media, share it with people. I mean, there are things that people can do um, that 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 help build the strength of this show. And by building the strength of this show, we set an example for other shows, and 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 help build the networks and the stations that we're on in ways that that strengthen progressive talk radio. But that's kind of a digression, Rama. I you know I appreciate yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm gonna. And and I'm gonna do like you taught me back back 15, 18 years ago, I guess it is now. Uh, I'm gonna move on to the next caller. (laughs) Rama, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you, my friend, and the very best to you and your family. Mark in Long Beach, California. Hey, Mark, what's up?
5: Well, I was thinking, uh, you know, if if you just uh, gave the pharmaceutical companies uh, all the profits they expect by printing up an extra trillion like they like to do,
4: problem solved. The medicine well, will be or, no. Finish oh, your thought. Hard. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I've got to learn to control myself here. <laughs> Usually, I only interrupt people when I'm down to one minute, right? But I've got we've got three minutes. Yeah, so, so finish your thought, Mark. Yeah, it's
5: it's a matter. of, You know, these if if it's greed is a problem. You, you say okay. You you were going to make you know Pfizer. You were going to make uh, 500 million. Here it is release your patent and so forth. We've been printing up money to rescue us from this pandemic left and right. So print up an extra trillion, distribute it between the companies for them to uh, let their patents go so we can solve the problem.
4: The problem with giving them the money for the product is that they just don't have the capacity to produce it, and that's why it needs to be made in all these literally thousands of generic drug-making facilities all around the world. The interesting thing, Mark, that I haven't seen anybody do the math on, and I was expecting when Laurie Wallach came on our program to lay this whole thing out and explain what TRIPS was and all that kind of stuff. The thing that occurred to me, and and I don't have the data to do the math on this, but if uh, Pfizer, for example, is going to get a seven percent of sales royalty from every generic company that's making a version of their vaccine around the country, we're going to go from Pfizer producing maybe a billion vaccines or a hundred, you know, five hundred million vaccines, eh, probably a billion vaccines over the course of the next twenty-four months. We're going to go from them producing a billion to them producing a billion and the generic companies producing probably five or 10 billion, because it's gonna take that, it's gonna take you know 10 or 15 billion doses to vaccinate the world, 10 billion, and they're paying that 7% royalty to Pfizer. Pfizer may end up with more money than they could ever make if they just kept it all in their own factories. Even though they're making less per dose, there's gonna be so many more doses so you know i i nobody seems to be considering that either i mean this may actually be a giant money-making opportunity for these companies not to pick on pfizer i'm, I'm using them as the example because i got their shot i love their shot i think they're, you know they're, they did a great job with this product but yeah point made mark thank you for the call thanks for listening to kpfk it's much appreciated kpfk that is in fund drive right now so help them out we'll be right back
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
4: Back with more of your calls, thoughts, arguments, debates, (laughs) in just a moment. James in Los Angeles listening on KPFK. Hey, James, what's up?
3: Well, just a follow-up on your one previous caller who said something about the AstraZeneca vaccine that mm-hmm. uh, they had not asked for the rights. Well, for the patent rights, what it was really is—I have the stories here. I looked it okay. all up. Thank you. Actually, actually, the uh, the Oxford University was the one who developed the vaccine. They had mm-hmm. sold. They had sold the rights to. To, uh, they they had uh, at the beginning in August of 2020 had said that they were going to waive the rights of the pat for the patent in uh, only during the pandemic right. and uh, the, and the the Gates Foundation Bill Gates moved in and coerced them I guess to uh, to protect the IP rights. He said, oh, that's that interesting. "They should jo- go. Ahead. You know, yeah, they should go." Ahead it was Bill Gates it. just
4: a couple of days ago who said that we need to protect these IP rights and there shouldn't be waivers. Exactly. Forgive the interruption right. back to you, James.
3: So that's what he did. He he had coerced them, the Oxford University, into selling the the rights to AstraZeneca. So AstraZeneca with it, all its murky deals, we don't know anything of what they did. They more than uh. likely had Had put together a a deal that says we are going to protect the IP rights. So it wasn't really Astrazeneca who asked for the rights; it was for the uh, to weigh the patent rights. It was Oxford University, but they found out, like later on, uh, in the long term, they would make millions of dollars. They're still going to get or billions of dollars, put that way. Oh, there's there's big
4: there's big money
3: is. Okay, James, thank you. Who asked for it? Yes, sir. Thank you. Have that comports day,
4: with my memory. You know, I remember vaguely as that was happening. That was some time ago. But yeah, thank you very much, James. Great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Alan in Newport Beach, also listening on KPFK in Pledge Drive. Help them out. Hey, Alan, what's up? You
6: had mentioned earlier the origin of the word fascism coming from, you know, the Roman mm-hmm. bundle. of sticks. Yeah. As a young child, I recall that it was on the American
4: currency. Now, if you look at the back of the mercury dime. It's You're right. There. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember that. My dad used to collect coins. And yeah, the fascia, it's, and it's carved into various pieces of wood all over the, in the House and Senate. I mean, because it was the framers of the Constitution, the founders of this country, they were looking at the Greek democracy, and the Roman Republic. Those were their, their two role models, you know, to see, you know, how do you do this? And the Roman Republic used the fasciae, the, the bundle of sticks, as their logo. So, you know, early on in our republic, right up until the 1930s, as you point out, I think the Mercury Dime first came out of what, in the 1920s? Am I remembering right? Do you know, Alan?
6: No, I don't. No, I don't. All I do yeah, is I recall it was, when as a kid, you know, seeing
5: the Mercury Dime, said, oh, yeah. Okay, very
4: good. Yeah, it was way back in the day. Yeah, Yeah. And, and so, you know, it was like, yes, it was, you know, homage to that. Alan, thank you for the call. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman.
1: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
4: And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Picking up your phone calls, Ben in Houston, Texas. Hey, Ben, what's up? Two things.
6: Back 2001, anthrax scare. The Bush administration threatened to do exactly what the Biden administration is doing right now and give out the, I forgot what the... the it was the, the, to Cipro. To, to yes. So they threatened to do that. And sure enough, the, because whoever had it, bear Bear said, oh, yeah, All those, we can get you in about 18 months. And it's like, uh uh-uh. So anyway, they used it back then. But the reason I was calling was there's another view of why america wants to do or biden administration wants to do that give out the, the vaccine is because russia and china are already doing it russia sold vaccine to peru and then shortly thereafter they agreed peru agreed to give them access to a lithium uh, mine and then china right. they gave back they gave vaccine to algeria and guess what fact, now Algeria is promising not to make any comment about anything internal uh, uh, in China. So our near peers are already doing this. So just maybe one other thing. That's a really,
4: really important point, Ben. I mean, what you just made is a really important point that China and Russia, who both have developed vaccines that are not anywhere near as effective, apparently, as most of the ones developed, you know, in the United Kingdom and the United States they're using those vaccines as instruments of statecraft as instruments of foreign policy and if we can get Astra, if we can get you know some of these companies to waive their patent protections and, you know not not in their entirety you know they'll they'll still make money but if we can pull this thing off we can play that game too ben that's brilliant and i know i interrupted you just before you finished your thought is there anything you wanted to add to that no actually and well and the thing is this has
6: been going on a long time in the early 2000s china went into africa and and said hey look we'll we'll build, build you schools and roads and stuff and then guess what they got oil contracts so you're right. Typically, there's there's soft power, which is that's what this is, and then there's hard power, power which a lot of times the U.S. implements and they go in and force you know their way. But anyway, just uh, to contribute to
4: your conversation, I love your show. Thank you, Ben. Very, very well said. And I would add that that hard power aspect, the military threat, that was what the Trump administration entirely focused on. And they pulled back most of our soft power stuff, you know, USAID and, and, uh, and all these other programs where we go around the world and we help, we vaccinate people, we deal with the AIDS crisis in Africa. We're, do, we're doing, you know, this, uh, all, just a whole variety of these things. Yeah, well said, Ben. Thank you. Greg in Germantown, Maryland. Hey, Greg, what's up?
5: Well, I was going to talk about the cost of drugs. The government has com- very much power in, in setting prices on that. First off, it's been done in the utility industry, with even with the open market utilities. In many states, they still guarantee them 24% profits. I mean massive profits. And that's, sure. that's what the commissions do. They just set the price. They set it very high. And they, they have no trouble doing this in drugs if they want. It's done, in every state controls the cost of Insurance, the cost that hospitals can pay or charge, there's uh, massive amounts of regulation on the pricing in medicine.
7: There's You're no reason right. at all and the, why they
5: can't simply say a reasonable profit is 12%, even though that's the average profit for corporations is a 6%. So if they put it at 12%, nobody could complain.
4: Yeah, and I think that some of these vaccine companies are making like, you know, 300%, 500%, 10,000%. God only knows what. But, you know, they're recovering their their initial investments very, very quickly. But your point is well taken, and I would add to it that the other way that governments can control prices is by mass purchases. Uh, You know, if... We were to do away with that 2005 law that George W. Bush and the Republicans put into place that said that it's illegal for Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Medicare that literally buys millions of pills every single day in the United States and has to pay full retail one pill per you know price. If Medicare was able to to go out and say, okay, this year we're gonna we're gonna buy you know 10 million doses of amoxicillin, but we don't want to pay that dollar a pill retail price. We want to pay the penny a pill retail uh, you know wholesale price that you charge the army or that you charge the hospitals or that you charge you know uh, 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 you know one of the HMOs, then we would have some control over the pricing that way too. So excellent point, Greg. Excellent point. Thank you very much. Stick around. We will be back. Professor Richard Wolf is going to drop by. We're going to be talking about the gig economy. It's going to get interesting. Stick around. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Robin Feldman's book, Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes, The Unstoppable Growth of Prescription Drug Prices from Oxford University Press. This is from the introduction. Everyone has a limit Every budget has an endpoint. Although sellers would love to raise prices continually, it doesn't take fancy economics to know that at some point, the money runs out. Why isn't that basic principle working as expected in the pharmaceutical industry? Instead, drug prices are rising continually and reaching astronomical levels with no end in sight. In May 2018, analysts reported that a company is contemplating a $1.5 million price tag for new hemophilia cure. The current hemophilia therapies already cost an astounding $580,000 to $800,000 a year. Along the same lines, Spark Therapeutics' cure for a rare form of blindness will cost $850,000, rivaling Novartis' planned $475,000 price tag for its CAR-T drug, Chimera. Even outside the eye-popping headlines, prescription drug prices across the board have risen to an alarming and puzzling level. A government inspector general's report found that the high cost of brand medications for common conditions like diabetes, high cholesterol, and asthma were the true problem for patients on Medicare. In fact, pharmaceutical companies have raised the prices most sharply for commonly used medications such as these. Similarly, an analyst report concluded that in 2016, the average price for a set of specialty drugs known as orphan drugs was $140,000 a year, and the average price of ordinary drugs was almost $28,000 a year. The list price of drugs tells only part of the story, given the many rebate and discount processes that exist within the industry. Nevertheless, real spending for drugs is rising as well. According to the Health and Human Services Inspector General's report, even after accounting for rebates, Medicare spending for branded drugs still rose 62% between 2011 and 2015. Worse yet, the department responsible for Medicare and Medicaid projects that the increase in national prescription drug spending will more than double in 2018 from the prior year's significant rise. In 2017 this increase in spending outpaced increased health care spending as a whole in the 2017-2018 consumer price index all of this despite the fact that roughly 80 percent of the prescriptions in this country are filled using generic drugs no one would ever suggest that spending within the healthcare care system follows an ordinary rational model the patient as consumer does not absorb the full cost of health care given the effects of private insurance and government programs Nor does the consumer possess full information about the products purchased or the cost of choices, and even physicians experience information gaps. Most important, the value consumers place on their own lives creates distortions that differ from buying choices in ordinary markets. Nevertheless, dollars are finite, and some limits must exist. One can see the mounting pressure in government budgets, which are struggling to cover the cost of new expensive medicines. If the Defense Department had treated all veterans all VA patients infected with hepatitis C in 2015 using the breakthrough cure Sovaldi. The $12 billion cost would have accounted for 20% of the department's annual medical budget just for treating a single disease. With budgets in the home, patients reporting rationing or foregoing medications for lack of funding. This is precisely the type of boundary point that should create pressure to reduce prices, and yet the rises persist. This book analyzes and explains the phenomenon which is puzzled modern commentators and policymakers alike. Why do drug prices stubbornly continue to rise despite the promise of competition from generic drugs? Quite simply, the phenomenon occurs because internal incentives push every market participant toward behaviors that increase prices, knocking out the normal checks that should operate as breakpoints on the market. At the center of the system lies the highly secret and highly concentrated industry known as Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs. These middle players negotiate prices between branded drug companies and those who pay the bills. They arrange for rebates from various drug companies. They also establish the formularies, which are the schedules that set the terms on which patients can access particular drugs and the reimbursement rate patients will get. The PBM middle players are supposed to act to ensure good bargains for patients and health insurers, but the reality is far from that ideal. Moreover, the system is deeply hidden. The contracts between the drug companies and the PBMs are a closely guarded secret, with the details known only to the drug companies and the PBMs themselves. Government entities and the private insurers who pay the bills are not permitted to see the full terms of the contracts. Those who pay are given periodic rebates without full information regarding the actual net pricing for any particular drugs. Markets thrive on information, and from the standpoint of competition, such an industry design is problematic at best. Despite the extreme secrecy, details have begun to seep out through case documents, including recent contract disputes among parties, government reports, reports to shareholders, state Medicaid actions, and industry insider reports. Placing together information from these original sources, this book presents, for the first time, a full picture of the perverse profit-taking incentive structures within the industry. The book demonstrates the way in which encouraging consumers to use drugs with higher prices operates in the interests of so many players, including doctors, clinics, hospitals, PBMs, brand drug companies, health plans, patient assistance programs, and patient advocacy programs. And then it continues from there. Drugs, Money, and Secret Handshakes by Robin Feldman. On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, the co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, the author of numerous books, his most recent The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also now available as an e-book. And his uh, Twitter handle prof wolf p r o f as in professor wolf w o l f f. Uh, one of his websites is also rdwolf with two f's dot com. If you want to check that out, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. I want to ask this, but I don't want it to sound just like you know facile. But is the gig up on the gig economy? I mean, are we are we seeing? Now, the strengthening or the weakening of the gig economy, and maybe we should start out by defining it and how it fits into the realm of capitalism or regulated capitalism. As a consequence in part of, for example, the pandemic, we're seeing all these gig economy workers who are getting screwed because they were, quote, independent contractors. On the one hand, on the other hand, you're seeing efforts to give gig economy workers rights, which failed in California, but I believe succeeded in the United Kingdom. Correct me if I'm wrong, someplace in Europe. What's the deal here? Is the gig up on the gig economy?
7: Well, I think the answer is an an unsatisfying yes and no. Let's start with what the gig economy is. Basically, it means an economy in which the relationship between the employer and the employee kind of changes. From the typical one where you go to work for an employer, you sign a contract if you have a job with a union, sometimes even without a union. And then you're subject to a whole lot of laws and regulations that were built up over centuries as workers tried to get a better deal. For example, that there's an eight-hour day rather than a 12- or 16-hour day, uh, that you have a certain number of bathroom breaks, that you get uh, a few days off a year, that you get insurance, the variety of things that we nowadays call wage protection and benefit programs. So that was the typical thing. Employers always fought against every one of those, didn't want to pay for them, didn't want to be constrained by them. Workers had to go to all kinds of lengths, boycotts, strikes, job actions to get them. It's a long history. One of the ways, and here's the crucial part, one of the ways employers always dealt with this if they lost the fight and the law was passed that they had to give an eight-hour day or give bathroom breaks or whatever, was they would accept it and then look for escapes after the law was a reality. How do we evade the law, uh, having delayed it for, for decades? And here comes the gig economy by reclassifying a worker, that you're not an employee as you have been perhaps for decades, you are now a contractor. You are simply a person I enter into a deal with like I would with another business and you are therefore just running your own gig. It's as if your labor became the product you produced rather than the capability you sold to me as an employee. And why would they want to reclassify you? Because if you weren't an employed worker on the payroll, well then all the protections in the law for a payroll worker wouldn't apply. So a gig worker could be doing exactly the same thing he or she did uh, before as an employee, But because they were reclassified as a gig worker, they didn't have to get eight-hour day, they didn't have to get bathroom breaks, they didn't have to do any of that, they didn't have to pay for workman's compensation, Uh, all of the other aspects of constraint won by the working class over decades and centuries could be evaded. And that's why it happened. It has nothing to do with the so-called sharing economy or with technological breakthroughs. It was an effort to reestablish the world as it was in the fantasy of employers before workers won all the protections that they have become accustomed to.
4: It's kind of pre-1880, more or less, or or even before that.
7: Right, it's going backwards and that's all it was it was attractive to employers because it boosted their bottom line they saved on all the costs of worker protection that's why they did it the rest of it was all window dressing sharing all that kind of if you pardon me a bs uh, was designed to hide or, or to give opportunities to marginalized workers all of this extra stuff was dragged in it worked by the way in california with that voter action last year which is sad which fell for that kind of stuff but i think in most of the world it is being discovered certainly in european countries but elsewhere too it is what it is and you're going to have to fight it one way or another if you're going to hold on to the protections that workers have come to it and as gig workers experience The way Uber and Lyft drivers have, the constriction of their income uh, that they are now vulnerable to, they will become the very leaders of efforts to get for themselves what the workers protections always were. And you can see the pressure on Biden to pass uh, Marty Walsh, the the former mayor of Boston, issued that rule over the last couple of days. That's partly a response to the pressure that's now coming from these gig workers who are understanding what this ripoff always was.
4: You know, as as a small business owner and an employer, I'm just astonished by this. I mean, I, one of the most expensive and difficult things for any company is turnover, you know, right. replacing an employee, having to retrain them and everything. And, and you know, we, we provide full health benefits. We we provide, I think, reasonable pay. Our part-time workers, of course, are not getting health benefits, but I'm happy to comply with the labor laws and, you know, make sure that people are treated well because I, I want them to stay with me. I mean, you know, it's... This seems like stupid, frankly, in a way. I, I suppose if there's a large enough market of, if you're talking to low-skilled people, all they need to know how to do is drive a car, and you've got lots and lots of desperate people, you can exploit a lot of them for a long time. But isn't there a limit? Isn't there a point where this just kind of blows up and becomes something that isn't of advantage to companies?
7: It is. But, Tom, here's how this works. You can suck a lot of people into these kinds of scams for a while. And I don't just mean the desperate worker who wants a little extra money with whatever car he can get his hands on, although that's part of the story. It's also the investors. Basically, these companies go to investors and say, hey... We've got a sure-proof profit deal. It won't last forever, but for the next few years, we're going to be able to offer people what is in effect a taxi ride without having to cover all the talks that a legitimate cat taxi company has had to cover, all of those laws protecting the taxi driver. We're going to get around them. We're going to be able to charge pretty much what the taxi fare would have cost, but without all the costs that a regular taxi company has, we're going to make a bundle. You can get in on it by buying a share or getting involved as a venture capitalist early on, and it'll be a very profitable business until history catches up with us. And we have to do, for our drivers, what taxi companies have had to learn to do with theirs. So it's a, it's a quick turnover kind of hustle.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. Well, thank you for the overview, the explanation, and the history. Professor oh, Richard right. Wolf, his latest, thank you very much, his latest book, The Sickness is the System, democracyatwork.info, Prof. Wolf over at Twitter, Professor Richard Wolf, one of the good guys. You've been listening to Tom Hartman.
5: For audio and video archives, visit tomhartman.com.